Guys, welcome back to another episode of SoCal Watch Reviews. This is episode 31. I am Miguel. On the other line, I got P. P, how's it going? It's going great, man. Yo, it's All your right. boy P. Rouse back in the building for another one. You know it, man. You know it. So last week, we had Wes from Notice. And before that, we had Justin from Monta. Yeah. And today, we have somebody that we've been talking to for a long time, and we've been wanting to make this happen, but for whatever reason, we just didn't make it happen. But now, uh, we're fortunate enough to have Nicholas from Fierce Watches. Nicholas, how's Hi it going? Hi there. Thank you for having me. Yes, it's going well. Awesome, awesome. So, how's it going for you uh, over there in the UK with this whole quarantine? I know I've seen a lot of videos on Instagram and <laughs> you've been you've been definitely active there yes i mean it's well for starters you know i'm recording this from my bedroom not from my office um which is you know that's that's slightly strange suddenly you know i i, I live in a one-bedroom apartment with my husband and it's a, it's a beautiful apartment but it is tiny you know absolutely tiny and because we both travel so much for work it's never been much of a concern it's more of a crash pad um and now we're both finding working full-time literally sharing a dining room table when one of us needs to make a call or a zoom meeting they're having to go through to the kitchen (laughs) and then the wi-fi drops Mm. yeah it's a it's a new adjustment but you know what i we are both healthy um you know we're, we're we're doing okay we're doing okay thank you how about yourself? How, how's it with That's you guys? Well, it's the um, same old, yeah. same old everyday thing now. I go it's, to work, come home, grocery shop when I need to. You know, that's about it for me. Yeah, same here. I mean, it's it's, it's hard with, uh, you know, we, we got into this routine with my four-year-old, my wife, my four-year-old. Um, where every weekend we kind of had something planned, right? Whether it be a park or I don't know, whatever. I mean, there's so many things to do here in California. And now that this whole quarantine hit, I don't think he's affected as much. He's uh, he's one of those kids that likes to be indoors as long as he has an iPad and cartoons and YouTube and whatever, he's good. But I think this is kind of affecting more us because we were so used to kind of going out and now it's getting to the point where it's like, we miss it, you know? We, we definitely miss going outdoors and just doing things and but but we understand this is for the greater good you know but uh uh we were speaking um uh, with nicholas about you know small businesses obviously he has a small business and that's kind of kind of the main thing you know that is affecting a lot of small businesses and i really really sympathize with them because my mom's a small business owner my in-laws are small business owners and it's 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 sucky you know to say the least but everybody's healthy that's the most important thing because we will get through this eventually i don't know when um please everybody listening do not follow the the president's orders do not inject yourself with no no or please please don't we we, we apologize you know from us being in the u.s we apologize uh for nonsense like that coming out i have to say it was uh it was interesting actually because the day he said that was a day you know very glamorously i was cleaning our kitchen and i was uh bleaching our sink to make it all nice and white again and i was using uh in the uk we have a brand (laughs) called domestos which i think is uh it's like one of the one of the american brands anyway you know i'm using the bleach 
And then within about five minutes, I called my husband and I said, look, this is why we don't ingest this stuff. Like, look at what it's doing to the sink. It's literally like burning away all the dirt and grime. And he did, we were just looking at it. And you know, when you think, amazingly, two months ago, if you had said to me, the highlight of my Saturday would have been staring into a sink, watching bleach work and realising the significance of that. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. yeah like, no exactly. way. Mm-hmm. But, um, but no, and I mean, it's the thing with, uh, you know, the thing with this is it, it does impact and touch on a lot of people. Earlier today, I was chatting to my parents. They're celebrating their 34th wedding anniversary. Oh, congrats. Um, congrats. Yeah, thank you. The, absolutely, absolutely. And, um, you know, my, my mother is recovering from the virus. Um, you know, she, she, she had the virus Ooh, wow. and, you know, she is, she's doing very well, but you know, she'll, she'll hate me to admit this, but she is 70 years old, you know, and years ago she had TB. So she has, you know, issues with her lungs. And so it was a very, there was a very scary few weeks where, you know, she's a very active lady, always doing things, always full of energy. And suddenly you know, she couldn't get out of bed and, you know, for, thankfully she didn't have to go to hospital, but, you know, as I say, she's now doing much better, but it makes you realize how, you know, for fit and healthy people, it can just hit. And so, yeah, like, absolutely. It's, you know, try, try and stay safe and also stay safe for others. <laughs> oh yeah. It, wow. could, it could be any of us. So. Yeah, absolutely. You're mm-hmm. not immune to it. And that, that's what I hate about like, uh, a few weeks ago, there was actually spring breakers here in uh, Florida, and and they came out on TV like, oh, you know, what, what, why are you here? You know, it's the coronavirus. Oh, we're young. You know, that only happens to old people. And next thing you know, news came out that a lot of those people got infected. So it's like, yeah, you're mm-hmm. an idiot. Like, it doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter what you're a guy or a girl. What if it's gonna get you? It's gonna well, get we you, we you know we I mean? reckon so, that actually the timing was that my my mother potentially got it while we were on a, a, an aborted holiday in Florida with on the beach with the spring oh. breakers. And, you mm. know, when you do the math, it was either then or a day later when we were flying out of Miami back on a, the last BA flight to London. You know, it was one of the two where she would have caught it. And, yeah, on reflection, you're like, yeah, obviously mm. we shouldn't have gone there. But amazing how much everything changes in six six weeks, you know. But... Yeah. So what I want to know is when is Fierce coming out with their own face mask? Because <laughs> <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> Fierce branded face mask, so we could go and and get one that like that wool. You know, I, I hear uh, you have some really amazing right. Wool exactly. Straps, we, so. we could do yeah. you know, a very nice, yeah, very sort of I... traditional. I mean, it's the weird thing is, you know, I there was a moment that over the last few weeks really strikes me. It was uh, the Friday after I'd flown back in from the failed holiday in Florida. And I realized quickly we had to close the showroom. I had to, you know, basically evacuate my office. You know, when you think the UK is going into lockdown very, very soon, I need to basically take everything I can for, I don't know how long, you know, two weeks, two months, a year, because we don't know how severe the lockdown will be. So I'm literally just putting stuff into bags, you know, taking all the watches out of displays, locking everything away, taking all the watches off site to secure them safely. And there was a moment in amongst running around doing all this. So I just sat in one of my I've got some nice comfy chairs in my, my, my private office. And I sat down in one of them and I was just looking at on the wall. I've got a, a, a portrait of one of the managing directors. Uh, so my, 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 my predecessors. And I was looking at them and I was thinking, you know, mm-hmm. what's really bizarre. These guys all went through first world war. 
the Spanish flu pandemic, the Second World War, the Great Depression, and they they somehow made the business survive it. And it was that moment where you just sat there looking at it, thinking, "Sod it, mm. I'm going to make, I'm going to survive this somehow." And then very quickly, you're like, "Okay, we've got like five minutes before they close the building. I need to run down to the car." But you know, it was that sort of. I look back on those few minutes, just sat in the chair, just kind of thinking, "Wow, I never thought I would have to be." doing this but also it's that kind of far where you go okay right now i'm going to state the one thing we have to do is survive this like we have to get through this somehow obviously as a potentially a battered business because you know everything is changing but we have to survive it that's absolutely interesting wow that's crazy i didn't even you just put things into perspective that's crazy that your predecessors went through something crazy made it through so you will too coronavirus ain't gonna beat you uh you're gonna come out stronger and uh and your watches are are beautiful so there's no reason why they wouldn't (laughs) be even bigger after this but uh before we move forward what's what's on your what's on your wrist guys uh nicholas thank you well uh so just before we we started recording i realized i needed to put an actual watch on so uh i at the moment, I'm taking the opportunity because I'm not seeing people. I'm in, I'm in my flat all the time. Um, before we bring out new watches, we always do 3D printed cases in plastic. Um, oh, and cool. then you literally clip on a leather strap and you just put them on your, your wrist. And I, I will spend months wearing basically a solid plastic watch, which doesn't even have a dial or anything. Mm. But it means that you can interact with and see how does it catch on things? Does it slip under a cuff? Um, obviously, you don't wear it out and about because you'd look like a crazy person. Um, but also, <laughs> right. I don't want to give away, like, you know, I don't want to show people what's what's in the pipeline. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. I, I realized as we were, you know, I was putting on my headphones and getting ready to, to speak to you guys. I was like, hang on a moment. I'm, I'm wearing one of the plastic watches. Quickly, find a, find a proper decent watch. So, <laughs> right. I, I, I am I'm currently wearing a Brunswick Midas, so our, our golden watch, um, which I have fallen head over heels again in love with gold. So yeah, that's what's on my wrist today, the Midas. Oh yeah, that is nice. That is nice. That's beautiful. That's awesome. What are you uh, What are you wearing, P? Uh, Seiko Five. Classic. Yes. My father's a huge fan of the Uh, Seiko. Model number. Model number. Let me see if I get it right. SNK eight hundred seven. Bang. Nice. Nice. Well, funny enough, I'm wearing the Seiko too. I was gonna wear a, a vintage dress watch in honor of our friend Nicholas, but for whatever reason, I grabbed this one because I was taking pictures of it yesterday and it was set to the right time. So it's my Cord Seiko uh, Flightmaster, is what they call it. It's the SNA 411. So mm-hmm. one of the one of the first in my collection, and it was uh, yeah, love at first sight. A lot of people don't like it because it's super busy dials, like chronograph and you got an alarm function and it's it's a quartz watch of course Ooh. <laughs> so uh, whatever you know i like it and at the end of the day it's like if i like it and it was pre-owned too i didn't even buy it new i bought it for like 120 bucks under 30 mm. bucks on ebay whatever i don't care you know that's that's the thing about watches right if they speak to you if you like them it doesn't matter what brand they are or whatever do you you know don't don't care about what all these snobby people have to say you know so <laughs> I do, I do like your uh, but, your your Gerard Perigo. That is a beautiful vintage piece and unusual. No, uh, so you. everyone always talks about Vacheron being the sort of underdog of the Holy Trinity, but everyone seems to overlook mm-hmm. Gerard Perigo being almost as old as Vacheron. And you know they do in house right. movements, and 
they are mm-hmm. actually, you know, an in-house movement from them is quite accessible. You know, it's under sort of six, seven thousand dollars. You know, it's and Correct. great brand with great history, and yet everyone just overlooks them. And I think, I mean, your watch from the sixties, it's stunning. It's just so elegant with those two hands. Like, oh, beautiful piece. I, re- I when I saw your your pictures of it, I was like, that is a, <laughs> an unusual choice, but absolutely go for that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, thank you. Um, yeah, I was telling the guys, and I, I, I kind of keep preaching about Gerard Perigo, right? I'm like, I, something about the brand just intrigues me. What is it? I really don't know what it is, but uh, yeah, old, old, you know, Swiss company, and uh, and yeah, it is an odd choice because I don't wear dress watches, and I'm gonna be honest with you, I've only worn that watch once around the house, and to take pictures of it, and I've owned it for gee several months now. So again, I don't dress like you do you know i don't put suits on i'm always wearing jeans and a t-shirt so you know i I'm, I'm i'm anxious to wear it you know but with everything going on i don't know when i will but yeah manual wine movement is super thin i haven't done a review of it yet but i will um but yeah it's super cool i know uh p was looking into into a gerard perigo as well the gyromatic oh, lovely yes. we love yeah, vintage yeah. really nice. yeah and that I know some people criticize GP because of the Laureato, like, oh, it's a, it's an AP replica and this and that, but it's like, hey, you know what, it, it has its own thing going on, super cool, and like you said, you know, it's, it, they're pretty affordable for what well, you're put, getting. Put it this yeah. way, so. it was back in the noughties that Audi were the first car manufacturer to use, like, special running lights, you know, like LEDs around the light, right? And right. now, mm-hmm. now yeah, everybody so, has so what, is everyone just, oh, they're just copying Audi. It's like, no, things go through trends, you know, obviously, I mean, look at the 70s. Everyone, you know, everyone was producing different kinds of variants <laughs> of the same thing. And and the Laureato is, exactly. is legitimate, right. you know, it's got heritage. Um, and the finishing on a GP Laureato, the brand new ones, is it's out of this world. It is really, really nice. Yeah, no, definitely uh, an underdog of the, of the Swiss for sure. GP, if you people are sleeping on it, man. So you, you gotta you gotta look at those vintage uh, those vintage uh, GPS because they're super super affordable. And when I say affordable, I'm talking less yeah. than a thousand bucks, like in the low hundreds, you know. So no kidding, gyromatic. Uh, uh, you could pick them up for maybe one eighty. Or two hundred bucks, which is crazy. You're like, mm-hmm. what? a vintage Omega is going for, God, I don't know, twelve hundred bucks or probably more, just because it's an Omega. I, right. I, but, I reckon uh, five to ten uh, years time, assuming you know they, they they continue to survive and everything. But they're they're owned by Corinne Group, so they've got money behind them. I reckon GP is going to have its moment because. They, uh, they very interestingly at the start of the year rebranded, um, but they didn't announce it. They did it very subtly. And they're also putting out some absolute incredible pieces this year. If you look at the novelties that they've mm-hmm. quietly put out, they, they're really beginning to show what they can do. And um, your watch in particular reminded me they have a model called the 1966, which is their sort of dress watch, everyday watch. And... If you look at the case shape, I really think it's modelled on your watch. I mean, it's the dial is slightly different, but it's got a very similar look and feel to it. And I mean, they are... Huh. I tried one on in Harrods the other day, and it is just... It's such a nice watch. And you're thinking, if you've got sort of five, six thousand pounds mm. or, or, or the equivalent in dollars, like, actually, 
you're getting a watch with an in-house movement, you know, beautifully finished case, beautiful dial, great heritage. And it's a special watch. You know, it isn't a, a you know, a luxury brand. It's actually a premium luxury brand. Um, yeah, no, I will. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to see that this episode is basically going to be about the love of GP. <laughs> yeah no, for sure <laughs> that's funny that's funny well with that said um yeah let's get into let's get into history right p yeah for sure um talk about the history of fears watches so i sort of touched on it briefly about the fact that you know fears has got a, a very long illustrious heritage well to kind of put it into context this is we're currently in the 174th year since the, the brand was started um so it was cool, founded cool. in 1846, um, which, you know, 1846, Queen Victoria had only been on the throne for nine years. She was still in her 20s. Mm. Like it was right mm. at the beginning of the Victorian period. Um, it was actually also one year after um, the UK adopted a standardized time across the country uh, for the railways. So, you know, we're talking right at the beginning of sort of, you know, where watches and time became important and relevant. Um, you know, it was a year after Langer were founded. It was a year before Cartier was founded. So it was, we, we put it in perspective, wow. it's really old. Um, but yeah, so it was founded <laughs> in Bristol, which is a charming city uh, over on the west side of the UK uh, by a chap called Edwin Fear, which is why the brand is called Fears. Mm because it was Edwin Fear, and then over time, the, the name became Fear, apostrophe S, and then just Fears without the apostrophe, which is the name we use today. Um, and so Fears manufactured watches and clocks, um, and it ran through three generations of the Fear family. So it survived two world wars, the Great Depression, um, and eventually it closed in 1976. So 130 years after it had started. Mm. Um, and then after it closed, it basically disappeared. You know, in the 70s, loads of family-run businesses were closing. Um, nowadays, if a business was to close, there would always be the Instagram posts, the, the reviews on Google. The, you know, there would always be a, you know, breadcrumbs. There would always be some record of it having existed. Whereas back then... You know, it closed. I think most of the paperwork was burnt. You know, it just disappeared. And then you skip forward 40 years and I had the honor of restarting it in 2016. So we're, we're now into our fourth year. So, cool. so what, what, what was, what, how and why were you interested in restarting this particular brand? So I've... I know this sounds almost like a cliche. I've always loved watches, but I, I have since about seven, eight years old. That was when I first became aware of watches. Um, mm -hmm. And I'll, I'll talk more about this later. But my first watch that I fell in love with, I was eight years old. And I remember seeing an advert for Rolex Day Date. And I realized that it was just the most incredible thing in the world because it showed the day and date together. And I, I remember that because that was the point <laughs> where I started mm noticing watches um and then as a teenager got much more into it and then so i've got I'll, I'll give you my sort of little brief linkedin cv i've got a bit of a weird sort of background so i i did a a degree in economics um i was uh very interested in economics in business and i wanted to go into investment banking 
and I applied for banks and I was due to start at a, a, a bank, but I graduated in 2008. Um, so just as the entire financial world imploded and unsurprisingly, mm-hmm. I, I didn't get a job. I wasn't, I wasn't bright enough to, to hold on to my prospects. So I had to scramble around, look for a new job. And I, I started working in public relations, so marketing. And it's a great job. I loved it for three years. However, I'm quite dyslexic. And so writing press releases and articles is a bit of a limitation. Um, and we now have a copywriter with fears who, who make sure that they, they, they say we're going to turn it from Nick English into real English. Um, so <laughs> I realized I wanted to do something different. And, I, and so I remember the age of, of 23, I one Christmas sat down with a blank sheet of paper and went, right, if I could do anything in the world, what would I be? And, I, you know, going back to when you were a kid, right? You know, you, as a kid, people say to you, what right. do you want to be when you grow up? And it's very rarely project manager or accountant or, you know, it's, it's usually like, I want to be an astronaut or I want to be a train driver or, you know, there's right. all these different things. And I, I basically started with that place. And I said, right, I've got two passions in life, wristwatches and trains. And I said, right, if looking at those two fields, what could I do? Well, I could become a watchmaker or I could become a train driver, or I think in the States you call them a, a train engineer. Um, and so I started right. investigating those two jobs, realized that I preferred the, the, the look of watchmaking. Um, and so I applied to do an apprenticeship at loads of different of the big watch brands who had workshops in the UK. And I, after seven months of interviews and practical assessments and tests, Rolex eventually gave in and said, fine, come in, you could, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll give you a chance. So I started working at Rolex in 2011 and I'll be honest, I wanted to work for Amiga because I, I owned a Seamaster. <laughs> mm. I owned a Seamaster wow. that I had saved up for and bought when I was 18 years old. And I, I was a bit like, yeah, Rolex is great, but like I prefer Amiga as a brand. Anyway, I, um, I don't think I've actually admitted that anywhere before. So I'm, pro- I'm probably going to, you heard it here first from my former employer saying, please do not, uh, <laughs> um, but no, I, yeah, yeah us too. Don't worry. <laughs> exactly. You're bashing our name. <laughs> Take this episode down. Um, so I, 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 I went and started working for Rolex and I have to say very quickly, I realized that I, it's just an incredible place to work. And, you know, I, I'll be honest, I'm not a Rolex fanboy. And I'm using sort of those inverted commas of fanboy. I'm not someone who is obsessed with Rolex. Mm-hmm. I've, I've owned a few. Um, and, but I, when you work for the brand, you are just blown away what it's like to work for a private, so not owned by a group, a completely independent company of that size. I, someone who has that resources both manpower, manufacturing, and, and capital, but yet does not answer to a board of directors. Ro- no one owns Rolex. That's the interesting thing about Rolex. No one owns it, literally. It's owned by a charity. And, I mean, that's mm-hmm. what's incredible. And when you're there, from the outside, it appears to be very austere and very arrogant. You know, we are Rolex. We dictate all of this. On the inside, it's very humble, and everyone is very grateful to work for, and, and they take good care of their employees. Like they really do. And 
it was just an incredible experience. So that was sort of, you know, very much turning my passion into a profession. Absolutely loving it. I did mm. realise, though, after a few years, that as much as I was enjoying the, the work, sat at a workbench learning how to service and repair watches, I, I don't know. I think I've always had that little itch of wanting to do my own business one day. You know, I think if you've got a bit of an entrepreneurial bug, nothing can satisfy it until you, you do it. Um, and I remember chatting to my parents one weekend and saying to them, look, you know, I'd love to do my own business, but, you know, what, what could I do? And my mum sort of half jokingly as she's serving up the roast potatoes for the, for the for roast chicken, she said, well, why don't you restart the family watch company? And you suddenly go, sorry, mm. what are you talking about? And I, I, I'd known growing up that relatives in our history had been watchmakers, but I didn't realise that they'd also owned a watch company and that watch company is That's Fears. Crazy. So <laughs> I'm actually Edwin Fears, great, 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 grandson so i'm the sixth generation of the family line so that's insane so let me ask you, let me ask you something before you move on did you know about fierce watches at all have you even heard of of the fierce no, watch no. company before that i assumed i assumed okay. when they were watchmakers, so, they were like you know your your local independent watchmaker the guy you trust to service your vintage watches you know one man band maybe with an apprentice I didn't realise that they had actually run one of the biggest watch companies in Britain. I mean, Fears used to export to 95 countries around the world. They used to employ, they had 100 mm. watchmakers in so Bristol. You, that's crazy. So your parents just failed to, uh, to, to, to say this, uh, you know, growing up. I they suppose never, you they know, never some told people you talk about, oh... You know, everyone is aware of the family history. We used to own X or we used to run whatever. Right. That just wasn't the case in my family. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it, it was a very different sort of, you know, my, my, my father is a corporate lawyer for an American law firm in London. Um, my mother is a, a priest in the Church of England. So she's a, a vicar. Um, and so I... I, I wasn't sort of brought up in a watch world or even a sort of entrepreneurial world. So it just wasn't something really discussed. And also, I suppose it's not something you necessarily ask in your family. You don't sort of sit down going, I'm into watches. Has our, has our uh, family ever run Britain's oldest watch company? Yeah, no. Out of interest, <laughs> just, just, you know, over <laughs> just a mm. casual like conversation over supper. You know, so, yeah, it, on reflection, it's very strange. But I suppose it's a very natural thing. You know, I, I was never sort of, you know, brought up to, to do this or take it over. And when I say to people, I you know, they say, oh, well, what is it you do? Oh, I, I run Britain's oldest watch company. People naturally assume that I inherited the business. And I'm like, well, actually, to be frank, it's, I almost might as well just say I, I started a watch company, you know, well, you know, right, when right, you guys were right. talking to Wes, I, I, I really relate to a lot of the things that he and his partner went through and did because I've been there. I've done that, like literally finding suppliers fresh. You know, it wasn't like I could just, you know, dust off a padlock and go into an old factory in a warehouse and go, right, Fears will now reopen. No, no, no. I mean, the first year and a half, yeah. I ran Fears yeah. uh, from, from a, an old desk on my hallway. You know, <laughs> I didn't even have a, a, a spare room or an office to run it from, you know. So it's, it's a very, you know, a very sort of 
weird thing being very old, but also very young. <laughs> That's crazy. That's, That's cool. crazy. So how shocking was it to you, though, when your mom told you that you could restart the old family business? I mean, once you like really realized what she was talking about, how shocked were you or how what describe the feeling that, so that very you had? Much I mean, a, when people talk about eureka moments, um, you know, I, I think until you've experienced, I think describing a eureka moment is probably, you know, I'm an old romantic, so I'm going to use this analogy. It's a bit like describing being in love. If, you're, if you've been in love, you know what the sensation's like. But it's very difficult to fully describe it. And I think the eureka moment was like that. You know, it was something where I'd always assumed it was just like, ta-ta, you know, this is, this is what I'll do. But it was that sort of, a very, very quick, right. very sinking kind of feeling where you stop just thinking about anything else and going, what if, what if? And I've always, I think it helps that I've had the, the sort of character where it's not about the, I don't look at problems, I look at solutions. So like, you know, everything, when, when something's like, oh, you know, this is the problem. I'm like, right, well, let's fix it. Let's do it. Rather than at first going, oh, let's assess the risks and, you know, things that could go wrong in the scenario. And, you know, I'm, I've always been more the person, if there's a loud bang, I turn and go towards the sound, not away from it. So I think that helps that immediately my mind wasn't thinking, but I don't know about anything about business or how to run a watch company or how to design a watch or any of this. My immediate thought was, right, I better get started. Well, I, I, I thought it was such an interesting story that, you know, and people should know it because what you don't know and then you find out can be the motivation that you need to succeed. You know what I mean? And what you found out, you know what I'm saying, your enthusiasm and your love for this hobby that we have, you know what I'm saying, turned into a success. And don't get me wrong, there are many days where I think, you know, Great maybe stuff. this should have just stayed a hobby. Maybe I should just still be growing my watch collection and, you know, and, and you know, enjoying it. But... Yeah, I think that's the thing. You know, I when I it probably isn't a surprise, I get contacted by quite a few people wanting to set up watch companies. Um, and you know, sadly, my time is limited, so you I ask a few questions over email, and then the few that I think want to do it because you know, for want of a better phrase, they actually give a damn. I will talk to them, you know, either we'll, we'll go for dinner or do it over, over the phone. But there are so many people who think, oh, you know, watches, everyone likes watches, everyone's getting into it. Let's set up a watch company because we can make some money. Well, I'm sorry to break it to you. Like, mm -hmm. it's very difficult to make money running a watch company because if you're, you know, say you're a Kickstarter brand, well, you, you're, you're making a song and dance about having no, no middleman and, you know, oh, we've removed all this margin. Da, da, da. So actually, when you've sold your thousand watches, you haven't got very much cash left after it. And then you've got still with warranty repairs or you go down the crazy route like I do where, you know, we have all our parts made bespoke for us from the best manufacturers across Europe. Well, guess what? That costs a phenomenal amount of money. And, you know, I, I look at how much money right. is tied up in stock and parts and things. And you just think, no, no, you know, maybe one day, decades from now, but no, absolutely. You, you can't make money running a watch company that you the first few decades have to be driven by that passion of wanting to create a beautiful thing you know a beautiful object 
Absolutely. That's awesome. That's awesome. So when you got this kind of back back on board and stuff like that, how did you go about coming up with the with the first design and the name and, and all that stuff? Did you look at the history and say, I'm just going to borrow from there? Or did you just start fresh and I didn't start want from scratch? To, I didn't want to borrow too heavily from the history. Um, now, I think... You know, if you go on on the Fears website today and you look at watches we make, yes, they obviously have a more traditional, more classic appearance. Um, But they are not reproductions of the watches we made before. Um, If you go back to 2014-15, which is when I was sort of secretly setting up Fears in the background while still working at Rolex, um, you know, every lunch break I was nipping off to a coffee shop to write the business plan or answer phone calls to new suppliers. I was running two jobs at the same time. Um, I... I was very adamant that I wanted to, and this is still true today, I want to create the watches that I envisage Fears would be making today if it hadn't closed. And I think that's an important thing because, yes, when you look at a, a Brunswick made in 2020 and you look at a, a, you know, a Fears watch from, say, the 1950s, you can, see, you can see the link. You can see it in the logo, the shape of the hands, the proportions. But the modern watch is a modern watch you know it's not been built to look like an old watch you know i've always admired the way that you know if you look at a brand new porsche 911 and you compare it to the one from the 60s you can see you can see the family resemblance the same with you know most car you know i think that's where you get it with you know really good uh car brands they they know not to revolutionize or just to make a, a retro homage i know in the the beginning of the noughties, it was very fashionable for car companies to do lots of sort of retro looking cars, um, which now look ridiculous. And I, I, I sadly think there could be an element of that today. Like we will look back in 10, 20 years time and go, my goodness, that period in the late you know, teens was when everyone wants to make everything look vintage, you know, overly faux patinaed. But I don't know. I think I, I, I've always wanted to create something which, is its own thing. And I mean, when it came to the names, I, I think people, you could give it a, just a reference number. Obviously you need a reference number when you're selling a product, you know, uh, that, that, that helps, but I didn't want the names just to be sort of overtly random British words. You know, that could just be, I don't know. It's a bit twee. It's a bit like sticking a union Jack on everything. It's, it's too, you know, uh, you know, a pot of tea and, and crumpets with the queen i wanted it to actually be something that meant something and so our <laughs> launch family of watches was called the redcliffe and uh, we recently retired the redcliffe line um and the second uh, family is brunswick now i own the trademarks for both those names so they are the two families we will keep going forward we won't introduce loads of different model lines um but both of those names mean something redcliffe references redcliffe street in bristol and that's where Edwin Fierce started the business mm. in 1846. And Brunswick references Brunswick Square mm. in Bristol, which is where his grandson started the export division of the business in 1920. So they are subtle nods to the heritage, but you don't see on the dial Fears 1846. You know, because we've got this legitimate heritage, right? it would be so easy to plaster that everywhere. And I've always thought, actually, 
when you know you've got it, you don't need to flaunt it. Right. That's very cool. That's very cool. So, so I know uh, we were talking between P and I about design and names, and we've been talking to other companies. So, um, yeah, I guess as far as the science and, and the names, right, P? Um, mm-hmm. Who who comes up with them? I mean, is it is it you? Do you have a team? Is it? I mean, I know the first one obviously it was all you, but now that you grew a little bit and you have a, a, a bit of a team, I would assume is it just you, or do you run it by a committee or by the so, fellow employees? It's, uh, or... <laughs> it's interesting how it's evolved. So um, the initial design work was always done by myself. Um, while I was still at Rolex, I because I'm a, a, a sucker for punishment and I, I hate to have any free time on my hands. I did a night school course at a local university in London to learn how to use Adobe software. So I can use Adobe Illustrator for doing my own technical Mm -hmm. drawings and Adobe InDesign for doing um, our brochures and, you know, business cards and all of that. You know, I'm, I'm, um, I'd like to say I've got a, you know, a strong attention to detail. Some people call it, you know, anal retentive, but I, I, I like things to match. I like to know (laughs) that everything works well together. And so even today I do the initial designs. Um, you know, often it will be a case of I'll be on my morning jog and an idea will just pop into my head and I'll go, oh, my goodness, that would make an amazing watch. And some of these designs never get beyond me throwing a few things together on Illustrator and just kind of printing something out and looking at it. Um, but what I do have now is, you know, I, I now have people who will do the actual 3D designs, you know, the CAD work. Um, I can't do CAD myself. Um, and... I, you know, and, and people who perfect certain elements of it, but largely most of the the raw design that you see in the watch today is still stuff I've created, the lines, the curves, the radiuses. Um, but what I do have is I, I don't have a committee. I don't have a, I don't have a, um, you know, like, oh, a, a board of directors who I've got to say, what do we think of doing this? I'm proud to own 100% of my business, which does give me, it gives me the creative freedom to do some things that people wouldn't necessarily think it was right to do. For example, our first mechanical watch was the Brunswick and it's in a cushion case. Well, I'm sorry, cushion cases account for 0.8% of the watch market. No board of directors would allow you to invest the money Mm -hmm. we invested into the initial prototyping to create a watch that potentially could appeal Mm -hmm. to a fraction of the market. But I love cushion cases and I think they're charming. I think they're, you know, slightly eccentric, but I also think they can be very elegant. So I was like, no, this is what I want to do. Um, I do what I do have, and this is very important, is my brain's trust. Um, So there are these three three guys. um, One of them is is my husband. One of them owns and runs another uh, quite major British watch company. And one of them owns and runs a couple of luxury accessory brands. Um, And these three, I will speak very openly and freely with regularly. I speak to them multiple times a week and they, I will show them designs. I'll talk through concepts with them. Um, What's great about these three guys is they're very, very good friends, you know, my best friends, but they'll also call me out if they think I'm making a bad decision. You know, they will go, 
uh, I like it, but I don't really get it. They'll they'll be devil's advocate. They'll push back on design. They'll push back on things. Um, and I think that's really important because, you know, I, I was saying this to uh, someone the other day. I think when you run a business, you have to be not arrogant, but you have to have a, a, a disproportionate amount of self-confidence and self-belief in what you do. That's what gets you up. That's what pushes things forward. But at the same time, you need to have checks and balances because no one is, no one is perfect. And, there, you know, if I look back at the, uh, you know, the waste paper bin of, of designs that I, I was at the time convinced I should launch, my goodness, I wouldn't be talking to you today. I wouldn't have a watch company. I would never have, you know, got beyond the first year. So, yeah, you, you've got to have a balance. But no, fundamentally, the watch that, you know, you see on the website, the watch that you buy, the watch that you wear is a watch that, I have designed and I have created and I can't begin to tell you when you look down, you tell the time, you suddenly realize that everything you're looking at is what you thought about initially as an idea on a jog. And now it's a piece of metal on your wrist. That's cool. 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 Um, I'm looking at the, uh, the Brunswick, the blue dial. That oh, thank you. Smoking hot. Um, the Brunswick features the uh, Manuwine ETA 7001. What other movements have you used in the past and how would you uh, and how would it affect your company? Swatch is no longer allowed to sell to you these movements? So it's very interesting with, with the whole movement uh, fiasco, I think it's best to be described as. Um, I mean, I remember in December when the press release came out saying that effectively they were going to stop production. And I think for the rest of the day, I was, I was with my in-laws in Cornwall starting my Christmas holiday. And I think that I spent the next, you know, six, seven hours just on the phone to watch brands, all of us panicking, going, what the hell's going on? Like, what are we going to do? Um, so for some movements, there are a lot of supplies out there. There are plenty of movements floating around. I never bought my movements directly from ETA because to deal directly with ETA, you would need to place a minimum order for your first order of about quarter of a million dollars. And you would not receive the first movement for three years. So as a brand like myself, you know, I'm, wow. I'm a self-funded brand. You know, I, I, re I started the company with selling off my watch collection, not going on holiday and, and, and a few savings. But, you know, be under no illusion, I did, not, I did not start up fears with, you know, probably even a fifth of that amount of money. So that was not going to be an option. Um, so I've been lucky to, to source watches, but it is something that we are, everyone is very aware of. You know, where are you going to get movements from? And I think... You know, I, I spoke with the, the gents at Scottish Watchers about uh, movements and about Salita versus ETA because, sadly, the, the old adnum of uh, a little knowledge is, is a very dangerous thing. And I think that's true with movements. There are so many misconceptions about movements out there, um, about what's a good movement, what isn't a good movement, different brands. Um, I'm certainly aware that we're going to need to find a different movement away from ETA, potentially heading towards Salita. Um, mm -hmm. Salita used to actually make movements for ETA. So the quality is there. You know, you can specify the better quality movements. Um, 
I don't know if it's a dream of mine to have our own in-house, you know, perpetual calendar, minute repeater movement. Uh, I think it's unrealistic. Um, I would be very interested to see someone make a new, what I'd call a tractor movement. So the 2824, the SW200, these are a tractor movement that you can add lots of complications to, but fundamentally it's a standard movement, right? You know, if you, if you, get a watch with that move you know it's just going to work because it's a you know it, it's a reliable workhorse of a movement i would be very interested in any new brand offering new movements like that um i mean the when talking about movements obviously a question people often ask is about the uh, in-house you know doing it in-house it works but it's at a certain price point you know um uh, I, I know right. of Garrick watches in the UK. Garrick watches, um, they, they have their own movement, which they make in, in the UK. Um, but, you know, the watches with that movement start at, I think, fifteen, sixteen thousand dollars $16,000. So we're not talking about something mm. that is a, a beta at all. You know, we're, we're talking about something beautifully finished because it is an expensive thing to make a machine. Um but I don't, for the, for the foreseeable future, there isn't too much of a panic, but I think it will be looking to companies like Solita, companies like STP. Um, there's a few others beginning to crop up and do movements. Um, you know, there, there will always be, at the end of the day, this is, this is where, you know, uh, Switzerland being very much a, a capitalist country, they are going to, that people will want to make money because they will see that brands need movements, right? So that there will be people, and there are at the moment people developing all kinds of new movements that will be made available to uh, the wider market. Um, but it does have a huge Im impact because, you know, my Brunswick case and dial is designed to take that movement. There is not a, a direct Salita replacement. The, the, uh, well, the the closest Salita replacement is a different size of movement, so that affects the case. And on the dial, the sub-seconds is 0 0.05 of a millimetre in a different position. Well, that 0 0.05 of a millimetre means completely new dials, new tooling, new printing, new everything. Um, so, yeah, it's absolutely a, a concern. It's absolutely something that I need to be aware of. Um, but in the short term, it's not too much. You know, we, we, we make a few hundred watches a year. We're not building thousands. So we're in a lucky position. We're not, like, reliant on having to find, you know, massive stocks of these movements. Crazy. So two questions I have that came to mind is, what movements did your ancestors use? And furthermore, question number two, I'm looking at the display case back on this uh, specific gold model. And I see the the Eta movement is gold plated as well. So, do you buy them like that, or do you do that yourself? Okay, so, so the, two, the, two the first question: um, <laughs> all kinds of different movements. Um, largely, they were what would be considered the best quality Swiss movements at the time. So, there was a lot of SA movements. Um, later on, quite a few ETA. Certainly, the automatics were ETAs. Um, in fact, one model from the 50s, fascinating, the, the movement's actually from IWC. Um, so, you know, the, the interesting thing, when oh, wow. I've been uh, rebuilding the Fears archive, the watches come in, and whether it's from eBay, from collectors, or, you, you know, some people are very generous and donate watches to the archive. Um, 
we we take them to have them restored. Now it's a very tasteful restoration. I don't want to, you know, strip dials and stuff, but I want to know that every watch in the archive, if you wind it up, it will tick because I, I don't know. I just feel like that's the right thing to do. Um, and the watchmaker we work right. with, um, it's the same watchmaker who handles our fears heritage division. So we actually offer servicing and restoration for any fears watch ever made. Um, the oldest watch we worked on was from 1868. We actually had to, we had to make components for it from scratch. You know, there was no, no, no buying in stock from anywhere. No, it was literally having to make parts. So it was sadly quite an expensive restoration, but it was incredible to get this old beast of a pocket watch running again. Um, but yeah, so when, when we're going through, through them, what the watchmaker always finds is that, The, you know, the cases, the dials, the hands and the movement that Fears used were always machined and made to a high standard to last. And it's interesting because people have a, a, often have a, an idea that vintage watches were always made better or, you know, they were last a lifetime. Sadly, that's not true. I mean, in the 30s, they were building watches that were basically designed to, to be single use, i.e. they couldn't be serviced. Um, you know, the hands were made out of the equivalent of, you know, aluminium foil. You know, they, they would, you'd take them off the watch and you couldn't put them back on because they'd just break or disintegrate. So it's very interesting that, you know, there's a, and this, this comes back to why Rolex is Rolex, because actually, you know, when I was working at Rolexes, uh, sorry, working at Rolex, we would see Rolexes coming in that were from, you know, the early 1960s and they had been worn every single day, bashed around, and they were still serviceable and running and that is actually mm. unusual there are so many watches from that period that wouldn't have made it into the 80s they would have just not been repairable because they just weren't worth it um so they, they were the sort of movements that fears used um and in terms of the, the the midas um so when we receive our etas the first thing we do is strip them down so they they arrive brand new ready to go but rather than just time testing them or checking them, what we do is we strip them down clean them service them ourselves so we know that we have put in the correct oils and the correct lubricants and made sure everything is correct we uh, we actually modify a few components um so our watch hands we make in-house and as a result they're much thicker than standard watch hands they have a beautiful depth to them And that means we have to change things like the cannon pinion so that the hands don't risk touching each other. Um, and here's a random fact. Um, you, you mentioned the Brunswick Blue, P. Um, so the hands on that watch cost yes. 110% of the value of the movement inside that watch. So that mm. shows you when, you ha when you're, <laughs> excuse the pun, hand-making watch hands, uh, <laughs> When you're making hands yourself, like that, that, that is expensive, but it also means you have to change parts of the movement. Now, with the Midas, uh, rather than doing right. a, a Cote de Genève, a striping that we do, and then um, and then rhodium plating, we do a stipple finish. So the stippling gives a like a frosted effect. It's um, it's a traditional movement finish that was used a lot in Britain. So a lot of the old pocket watches in the archive have that finish and then we do a, a gold plate a dual gold plate so a base of 18 carat rose and then a top of nine carat yellow which gives that mm. sort of warm golden movement um and so 
you know, we, we take an ETA and we, we, we do a lot to it. I mean, you could go further. You could completely change the shape of the, uh, the bridges and, and really make it look something completely different. A la the, um, I don't know if you've seen the new watch from, from Ming watches. It's got fat, beautiful movement on it. Um, and that's an ETA movement. Anyway, what we want to do is, is, is you know, go wow. so far, but actually <laughs> the movement is one of the least expensive parts of the watch. The watch is all about, you know, the case, how that's made, the dial, the hands, you know, the only the only parts that are not bespoke are the winding crown, which is made in Switzerland, um, and the the movement. Um, but no, for us, it's it's always about and the people we work with to manufacture our parts are, are dotted across Europe, largely Germany and Switzerland, and you know they build for some of the top brands for most of them we are their i use inverted commas their least expensive watch company you know because they're building for the big boys and the big independents and so it's an honor that they they will deem to work with us but then we're a family-run watch company they are family-run watch component suppliers there is actually a connection you know you it is slightly awkward. There was a moment with my case manufacturer where I flew over to, to Stuttgart and I, I get a taxi to, to their, um, their, their factory and workshops. And we're chatting away, you know, getting to know each other and work out if we want to do business together. And we're going, he's going through my brochure and looking at the heritage and going, wow, this is incredible heritage. And then he gets mm-hmm. to the bit about 1940s where Bristol was you know, heavily bombed in the Blitz. And there's suddenly a pause and you think, Mm. Oh my goodness. Don't mention the war. Don't mention the fact that, you know, <laughs> that our two countries were at war right, twice. Right. Um, and then we pause and he looks at me and he goes, mm, mm, mm. don't worry, the REF did the same to, to our factories. And you just realised that, and we both chuckled about it and realised that actually we had a shared history. You know, both our family businesses had gone through the war, been heavily bombed and damaged, but we'd both survived it and come out the other side. And I think that's for me, very important when I work with our suppliers is, you know, actually having that connection. Um, and also, you know that when you order, say, 50 dials, you will receive 50 dials and those 50 dials will be perfect. There is no, oh, well, you order 50, so we'll send you 500 and most of them are rubbish and you're going to have to bin them. No, no. Yeah, and, and for me, that is, from an environmental standpoint, that's an ethical way of doing it, you know. You, you work with people who take pride in what they make. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes, sir. No, for sure, for sure. Well, we are getting close. Right, to I, I'll keep we shorter answers. Of for you. Uh, so, no, 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 no. What I was gonna, what I was gonna ask is, where everybody's listening right now, would you be open to the idea of coming? on another episode in, in the future to discuss all the other wonderful things and wonderful questions that we have sort of like a part Absolutely. of fears. Absolutely. Would you yeah. be open no, to the if, idea? If people would be interested, I, I will be happy oh, yeah. to do that. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> oh, I oh, think, of I think they, they will. Of course. Oh, absolutely. You're such an interesting guy. But before we talk about other things, I need yes. to ask. So we had Wes last week and he asked us we were talking about the name notice how he, they came up with it it's and this and that and then he goes hey i heard you're having nicholas from fierce watches why don't you ask him 
how the name Rolex uh, right. came about. So, so <laughs> take it away. So, <laughs> Rolex, the, the name Rolex has uh, two origins. There's the official story and then there's the, uh, the unofficial one. So I'll start with the unofficial because it's far more charming. Um, so people may not realize Rolex was founded in Britain, not Switzerland. Um, and Rolex was founded in 1905 right. as the Wildorf and Davis watch company. It wasn't called Rolex. That name didn't exist. And, and they were based in Hatton Garden in, in the watch and jewelry district of London. And they, they traded for, for, for a good amount of time. And then I believe it was in 1908, um, Hans Wildorf, the founder, um, he, he started using the word Rolex and started printing it on some dials. Now, the company didn't officially become Rolex until 1915 i one year into the first world war and that's significant because during the first world war there was a lot of um hatred towards any businesses that had german sounding names so during the first world war the royal the british royal family actually changed its name to windsor they had a german name a german surname and they changed their name so to appear more patriotic um now, now, Wildorf, I believe, was, um, I don't mm. think he was German. He might have been Austrian. But, you know, Wildorf is a very German-sounding name. And so he very quickly realized that his business would literally be under attack. You know, people were smashing windows, burning premises. You know, it was, you know, a lot of hatred towards, towards um, German-sounding businesses. So November 1915, he incorporated the Rolex Watch Company Limited and changed the name to Rolex. Okay, mm. so Rolex has technically existed from then. And then in 1919, he moved the business over to Switzerland and founded Rolex SA, which is their version of Limited or Inc. And uh, that was because of import duties after the First World War. Okay, but let's go back to 1908. Where did the name Rolex come from? Well, Hans Wildorf, who, if you look at any photos of him, was a very natty dresser. I mean, always in a bow tie. And in his later years, in the late 50s, that he died in, I believe, 1960, he looked like a crazy bad professor. He was such a wonderful looking guy. You know, he's got this hair waving around. Anyway, he was interviewed <laughs> and he said, oh, I was riding an omnibus. So uh, just a bus down Piccadilly in London. And a little fairy sat on my shoulder and whispered into my ear, Rolex. And I decided it was a wonderful name. <laughs> And therefore, <laughs> I should call the, the company that. And the thing is, it is a, obviously, <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I'm not going to start a debate here about whether fairies exist or not. But um, it is, uh, uh, you know, you look at that and you go, come on, how can a company like Rolex have that? <laughs> but then I told you, I, I get a lot of my inspiration when I'm going for my morning jog, right? You know, looking out of a train or car window often makes you think about things. Right. And so you can see there being an element of truth in that. Now, the official reason, it's called Rolex. There was a document in, the, I believe, the 1920s or maybe early 30s that Hans Wildorf signed. And I think his lawyer said, yeah, look, fairies are great, but we need like an actual thing specify where this name's come from, that it's not copied or whatever. Anyway, um, this document basically states that he wants to come right. up with a name for a watch dial, uh, for a watch company that would look good on the dial, it would have a nice balance. And actually, five letters is a perfect balance for a watch dial. 
just so happens Fears shares that as well. Um, but actually, if you look at it, lots of uh, watch brands have five <laughs> five letter names. Um, he wanted it to look good, balance on the dial. But very importantly, he wanted it to be easy to pronounce in any language, which is true. I mean, yes, mm. obviously accents and things will mean people, you know, will, will pronounce it slightly differently. Um, and I'm not going to embarrass myself by trying to <laughs> pretend I can do any different accents. Um, but it's, it's interesting. Yeah, you know, you show the word to people. People can pronounce it. No one goes, uh, you know, whereas I showed the name Fears... And there'll be some people who look at it and go, you know, how does F-E-A, like, you know, outside of English speaking languages, that's not a very common occurrence. Or, you know, you do look at some name. I mean, Langer and Zuna, you know, my goodness, you look at that and give it to a dyslexic like me. Mm -mm. Gerard Perigo. Oh, my goodness. Come on. Yeah, yeah. You're sort of like Gerard. No, forget it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You're just sort of... Rolex is Rolex. So, yeah, that's, that's the story of where a name came from. That's crazy. Wow. That's awesome. Well, I had no uh, idea. I really like the, I, uh, right. the I think story. That that's what I would get my lawyers that to That's do super cool. That's what I would want to be. So the guy... Yeah. <laughs> how'd, you come up, how'd you come up with the name Fears? Well, I was watching a scary movie and I, I got scared. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so it is out of fear. Yes. Mm-hmm. There's something, mm-hmm. know, something crazy like that. Um, crazy, crazy. Well, Nicholas, thank you so much for coming with us. Now we yeah. get into the portion of the show where we talk other things. You can talk about whatever you want. So we'll, 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 uh, we'll, let well, you I mean, I've what, touched what do you, what do you on want my, to share my love of trains, but I think trains don't translate to a podcast that well. Um, I was going to say, you know, it feels weird thinking about not talking <laughs> about watches because I, you know, I live and breathe watches and what people may not realize is, you know, at heart, I'm still a massive watch geek. I mean, I still, like, most of my free time is spent, like, either watching YouTubes or, like, you know, Tim Mosso is my is my god, you know. I, I, I try and, you know, maybe oh, once yeah. a day watch one of his videos just to expand my knowledge about other brands and history and, you know. Um, I mean, my personal watch mm-hmm. collection is obviously a fraction of that, but we can touch on that uh, uh, later. Um, but, no, I mean... I, one of the things that people always find quite funny is they, uh, they'll see like, you know, photos of me. I'm always sort of, you know, dressed quite formally, you know, I, I'm always in a tie and things. Obviously I'm not in a tie and lockdown. I'm not going right. to be sat in my own house wearing, you know, polished leather shoes and, you know, braces and a pocket square and, you know, <laughs> exactly go, you know, Oh darling, please Suspenders pass over and, another yeah, slice no, of got pizza. It. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I, I'm someone who gravitates more to slightly more formal dressing. I look ridiculous in t-shirts. Like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm rev- relatively tall and gangly. I, I, I'm not a, I don't have a physique that fills a t-shirt. So I, I, I tend to wear shirts and trousers. Um, since I was a child, <laughs> I've, I worked out actually, since I was four years old, I have spent more days oh, wow. wearing a tie than not wearing a tie. Because all of my school years, I had mm. to, I'm four years wow. old, I could do a tie up before I could do my shoelaces. Um, and so for me, I, wow, that's insane. I dress formally, but I'm also informal with it. So for example, you know, I'm, I'm 33. So my, my days of going out clubbing regularly are, 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 are dwindling quite a bit. Um, 
but like you know in the 20s in, in my 20s right you know, while i was at rolex you know on a friday i'd go out i'd be in my you know my formal suit and tie and yeah i would i'd go out clubbing with my friends you know i'd, I'd be the guy on a podium dancing in a tie you know but but for me it's like it's their clothes they make you feel good and i think actually that's the same with watches you know a watch should make you feel like the best version of yourself and i think clothes should do the same for some people Absolutely. that will be like streetwear yeah. yeah. or it will be they've got a particular pair of jeans they like they you know for them to feel good they need to be more relaxed for me i need to feel my clothes are you know more tailored right. more like you know that just makes me stand taller and you know shoulders back and feel more confident um but yeah i mean th- th- this is the bizarre thing sure. you know, i have a few interests obviously outside of watches and trains you know I'm, I'm interested in architecture interior design um but sadly these aren't these aren't hobbies or interests i get to indulge in you know i don't i don't have much time to sort of spend reading up about them or or you know enjoying them um and I think very quickly in lockdown, you realize that, you know, going out and socializing with friends is, is not a hobby. <laughs> I think I think a lot of a lot of my friends have suddenly realized that actually going, <laughs> I really should do more of my life than just going out and uh, going to the pub. Um, but no, I think it's, uh, yeah, you know, there are other things. But I mean, feel free to fire away with any questions you have. I mean, I'm very happy to talk about any any aspect of my life. Um, no, I, I guess the, the, the only thing that I, you hit the nail right on the head is, is the way you dress, you know, it could be, like you said, a suit and tie, or it could be a pair of shoes, or it could be something. So if something empowers you, whatever it is, do it by all means, you know what I mean? As long as you're not harming anybody else, uh, do it. And I guess episode two, we definitely want to talk about your fashion and, and kind of dig a little more deeper into that because I, I definitely want to want to explore that. I don't want to just kind of browse over it. So we'll we'll definitely talk about that next right. time. But yeah, you're always dressed so hey, nice. And, and, and please, <laughs> so. people, make sure you're matching. Absolutely. Okay, Absolutely. I tell you what, I, okay. <laughs> I, when people no. talk about matching, say, their belt to their, uh, you know, their, their shoes. So, you know, brown shoes, brown belt you've got to wear a brown watch strap, you know, <laughs> right. I, um, there, there, oh, wow. there, there it is, Miguel. Didn't I tell you that? It's, Didn't I tell you? Yeah. What yeah, I will yeah, reveal is, um, four years ago, we started fears and, uh, a color that I, I started pushing quite a lot for watch straps wasn't black, wasn't Brown because, so this is how it breaks down in the industry. Um, 90% of, of leather watch straps, whether it's alligator or leather, it's 90% of them are black. 8% are brown or a shade of brown mm-hmm. and 2% are in inverted commas other color. And I was like, well, obviously they are because it's like Henry Ford, you know, what color do you want it as long as it's black? You know, at the end of the day, you go into a watch store, you're only offered those colors, you know, black or brown sometimes. So I said, no, no, let's, let's look at different colors. Right. And very quickly I found that blue, dark blue or as we call it, fears blue, because the color has been created for us, is a very popular choice. The reason being, Mm -hmm. jeans and a suit both tend to be blue. 40% of men, it's their favorite color. Blue can be formal and it can be casual. It's a natural color. And so actually Mm -hmm. a blue watch strap is such a versatile option. It's almost as versatile as a metal bracelet because you put it on, 
and it, 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 you can dress it up, you can dress it down with everything else around it. Um, so you mentioned earlier about your, your, uh, your dress watch, your, your GP. Now, I think actually, you know, a dress mm-hmm. watch can be worn more often. It's just all to do with like how it's paired and what you're putting it with. I mean, I remember the days where I used to, on a Sunday, go to the pub in my, my Levi 501s and my old uh, university rugby shirt, and I'd be wearing my white gold day date, you know, and people would be like, why are you going to the pub wearing a watch like that? And I'd be like, but the fact is, it's a white metal watch on a bracelet. It looks a little <laughs> bit sportier and it actually suits what I'm wearing. Like, you know, it just, it blends in and it's also how you wear it. And I think this is an right. important thing. You know, um, I know lots of people refer right. to the term safe queens, you know, you, you buy a watch and lock it away. I mean, I literally wore that, that day date doing absolutely right. everything. It never left my wrist, you know, I remember once being told off um, That's awesome. <laughs> by my other half because I was up a ladder painting the ceiling and I was wearing the watch and he's like, no, take that off. You cannot wear that. And... But, you know, for me, a watch should be enjoyed and a watch that's enjoyed, <laughs> like clothes, if they're enjoyed, it's because you, you feel comfortable. Now, obviously, you take care of them. You don't want to damage beautiful leather shoes by wearing them in the, the mud and, you know, you, you don't want to overly crumple a suit. But at the same time, you know, you right. shouldn't look like you are dressed up. It shouldn't look like a costume. It can be a uniform, but it shouldn't be a costume. It should. And the same with a watch. You know, you should put a watch on and then forget mm. about it. Because at the end of the day, it's a tool to use and look at. And obviously, like your iPhone, you don't want to drop it and smash it and do that. But like, you know, at the same time, put it on and just let it be. Right on. Well said. Well said. said. Awesome. Pete? Uh, you know what it is. Star Wars, Clone Wars, another great episode. You know what I mean? Get into it. I'm trying to tell you, it's the <laughs> best thing going today. All right. The best oh, thing man. going today. All right. All right. Well, I actually got a chance to watch two movies this week, which is kind of weird for me. If I get lucky, if I get one half an hour showing uh, with with a little one and being married and all that. But uh, yeah, we actually found the time to watch two movies. So first one that I I recommend both of them. But uh, if you love action, I recommend Extraction with Thor. Uh, with Thor. Thor with Chris Hemsworth. It's on Netflix. Amazing movie. If you it's, love it's action, like blood and all that. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. It's not one of the best movies, but it's pretty good. It's pretty entertaining, and uh, the ending kind of kind of leaves you wondering what well, what happened, you know. But it was a good movie. It was a good movie. And then number two, we've been wanting to watch this for a while, but it actually just came out on Hulu, and is uh, Parasite. So I know won a won a bunch of awards, Academy Awards, and stuff like that. It's a uh, South Korean. Is that is that the one film. where someone it's, goes uh, subtitles, but it gets involved really in some good. very rich family, and they. Yeah, I've, I've heard about that this was... Yes, It wasn't yes. even expected to be a massive hit. And oh, my It gosh. really has oh. captured people's... Yeah. No. you got to watch it. <laughs> yeah, you got to watch it. It's, it. It deals with a social economic level in a completely different way that makes you really realize, like, crap, the, the rich really do live rich and the poor really do live poor and kind of... You, you gotta watch it. I don't even know how to explain it without giving any spoilers, but you gotta watch, especially anybody having that has Hulu and it's in the states. I don't know about outside of the states, but it's actually on Hulu, so you can watch it. It, it does have subtitles, but the very 
first five minutes, it, it just has you hooked. Mm. We couldn't stop watching it. We went to sleep like at two o'clock in the morning or something, just watching this thing. Uh, but yeah, it was it was really good. So I highly sometimes you want films like that. Uh, perfect films are the ones that make cool. you stay up late, even if you know you've got to get up in the next morning. It's like reading. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm like, I got a, I got a podcast tomorrow morning, but uh, I, here I am watching this. <laughs> but, so uh, you right, can Nicholas, find well, Fears online at fearswatchers.com. Um, we're also on Instagram and Facebook, just simply as Fears Watchers. Um, and if you are interested at all in my random world and behind the scenes of running Britain's oldest watch company, you can find me personally on Instagram as Nicholas Bowman Scargill. Um, but yeah, have a look. And if you, anyone ever has any questions, I, I, I love talking to people. I love chatting to people. Uh, so yeah, just send, send me a message on Instagram or send us an email and yeah, we'd love to go from there. Sure. Pete? Uh, Ross wristwatch love everywhere. YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook, MySpace, uh, LinkedIn, linked out everywhere. <laughs> 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 sounds good and you can find me socal watch reviews on youtube and uh instagram and yeah we we keep uh we go and uh, keep at it and, and keep putting out episodes uh both on youtube and uh podcast thank and you nicholas again thank you so much for coming and yeah we'll definitely have a part we'll have a part two for sure a little bit more time we'll, we'll elaborate more on other things because you're such an interesting guy and we we definitely have a lot more questions but uh but yeah, uh, everybody listening, thank you so much for the support. Go check Fierce Watches out. Yes. Uh, awesome watches, uh, extremely well manufactured, Absolutely. Uh, with a rich history. And Nicholas, as you can tell, he is a very, very interesting individual and very cool, very humble. And yeah, with that said, uh, thank you again, uh, Nicholas. Thank you, P. And yeah, my friends, uh, stay humble. <laughs>